Podcast is a calm, reasoned conversation about local issues in Olympia, Washington. Calm and reasoned. Yeah. Uh, calm. Okay. An overarching issue that impacts the ability of a person to access housing, eat healthy food, see a doctor, and generally enjoy a high quality of life is poverty. Without addressing the overarching and underlying issue of poverty, the things that we try to do to support people in need can only go so far. In Olympia and throughout the nation, those who experience poverty are disproportionately people of color. Today, we're sitting down with Megan Matthews, who works as the engagement manager at the Washington State Department of Social and Health Services. Welcome to the show, Megan. Can you introduce yourself and tell tell us about your work? Sure. Thank you uh, for having me as a a guest today. Uh, My name is Megan Matthews, and I um, am working with the Governor's Poverty Reduction Work Group to develop a uh, 10-year plan for the future to reduce poverty and inequality in Washington state. And so currently we are uh, out reaching out to different communities and receiving feedback on the draft plan so that when we um, present the final plan, it actually speaks for all those communities that are disproportionately uh, impacted by poverty in Washington state. So before we dive into that work, um, let's just do a quick COVID check-in. Um, how, how has the pandemic changed your world uh, and especially work with poverty? And what are your hopes and fears in the coming months? So um, I think it's impacted everyone to an extent. For me, I feel um, blessed and lucky to still have a job. So uh, financial uh, instability is not a concern for me right now, which I'm very uh, grateful for. And learning how to transition to being at home for, you know, most of 24-7, doing meetings online and all of that. Um, I'm an extrovert, so not being able to see and feel and touch (laughs) people is is kind of different for me. Um, Do do you feel that, Danny? I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought the opposite reaction. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and 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 really no end in sight. We don't have a date for when things, you know, when we can actually begin being around people again. And so, um, I think for me, my hope, my hope is that um, as we look into the impact of COVID economically and what that does to Washington State, that we. Um, the equitable recovery in Washington State is the goal, where everyone can recover um, economically and not just the benefit of some. And so I'm thrilled to be a part of this effort working on this plan. So let's go back into your work, which is, as you described, engaging with the community about finalizing Washington State's 10-year plan to reduce poverty and inequality. Can you give us more background on this project and what are you most excited about for this work? So in the end of 2017, um, Governor Inslee put together a task force to begin looking into poverty. And, you know, there's a lot of 
people and agencies who deal with aspects of poverty. But I think what we all understand is that it's really complex, right? There are a lot of factors that lead into poverty. And so it's not necessarily the goal isn't to target just one thing specifically. This plan is a product of two years of work for many different agencies, many um, organizations, nonprofit sector, business sector, commissions, state agencies, um, tribes, advocates, funders, legislators, and community members. And everyone came together to try to figure out what a real, like how we can really target poverty and inequality in Washington state. I think the thing that we're all most proud within this work is the steering committee that was made up of 22 people reflecting the demographic and geographic experience of poverty. And this group, they really directed the work and they provided the insight that many times we don't have into what are the real barriers that people exist, that people uh, face when trying to navigate our systems and get out of poverty. And so the product of this is has been phenomenal. And I'm reaching out to different community members that may or community organizations that maybe weren't reflected in the in the steering committee or in the plan. And a large way to see are there any holes, um, any gaps that we need to fill in before we embark on uh, launching this plan. You know, we've been receiving some amazing feedback, and I'm glad in uh, about that. And excited to see how we how it gets incorporated into the final plan. So um, for me, I'm most excited about a new model that this plan um, will advocate for, one in which lived experience directs the work and as a partner throughout the process. This is a new methodology, but one that has greatly benefited the work and I think can greatly benefit state, county, local jurisdictions as we look to um, impact our communities that we serve. Well, the first, the first strategy talks about understanding structural racism and historical trauma and taking action to undo their harmful impacts in state policy and programs. So can you tell us more about this? What are the harmful impacts that are embedded in state policy and programs? And what does it look like to repair that harm? Yeah, so this strategy is really about understanding um, racist policy uh, nationally that in the past and the outcomes that we see today because of those policies. Things like wealth inequality that, at least in the Black perspective, are due to things like legal segregation that prevented many Black people from obtaining college degrees and other post-secondary education. And then housing discrimination that prevented Black people from owning homes. And historically, post-second education and um, owning homes was uh, a way to move into the middle class over time, Black people have been unable to pass down the generational wealth that white people have. Um, and this is generally, on average, it doesn't necessarily speak for every individual white or Black person. This is about data of outcomes due to systems of racist policy. Now, this is just one example focused on Black people, but there are there's policy that impacted Indigenous folks and other people of color as well, that uh, the outcome of which is the disparities we see today. That is why we recommend centering indigenous black and brown people in the implementation of recommendations, because these are the experts, these are the ones who are living these lives. And in order to change these outcomes, we need their voice to help us make good policy. 
Let's continue a little bit on that track. The second strategy is about making equal space in decision-making for people in communities most affected by poverty and inequality. What, let's, let's move this local, like Olympia as community versus Olympia as like state capital. What does making equal space in the city, the school district and other community organizations that hold power look like? So you might notice that um, the the plan is brought in its recommendations and we focus it brought intentionally because to every community has different needs. They, they look differently. And so it's hard to create a one stop shop that everyone can use. And so it, it intentionally needed to be broad and uh, not overly prescriptive because the needs of each community are different. Um, we believe it's best for these communities to implement the recommendations as they need to best impact them. Generally though, this is about decision makers, including lived experience and centering BIPOC, Black Indigenous people of color, voices in the development and the implementation of the policies. This sort of highlights the importance of diversity in decision making. No one of us knows it all. We're all limited by our experiences. So if we don't have as many different voices at the table, we won't achieve diversity of thought, which is the goal. Diversity of thought um, leads to higher productivity, more creativity, innovation, and greater efficiency. So I think in Olympia, and in Olympia, I, I've participated in, in some of the, in a town hall, and they've really intentionally tried to reach out to community members with lived experience to consider as we develop policy. I think it needs we need to go a little step further and just make sure how are we bringing these voices into the processes of policy development. Um, and then once policies are developed, how do we make sure these voices are at the table when we implement the policy? And um, this is new. I don't think um, any organization has been doing this for a long time, but I think in order for us to see different outcomes where you don't, the goal is to not be able to look at any demographic and then be able to tell or be able to kind of see impacts. So we know that if we look at poverty versus uh, by race, it can tell a story. We want no, one day to no longer have that in order to have the different out, yeah, outcome. We need to have these voices represented throughout the process. So I think that's what I would recommend for Olympia and any organization trying to impact this work. Do you have any examples of, um, I know you said that this is like a relatively new way of uh, looking at things, um, at least when it comes to government, but do you have any examples of uh, community-based organizations that, that, that do this really well? That reach out to the community? Or that who, who, who bring folks to the table um, who are being impacted by uh, uh, the, the problems that we're trying to solve. I think, I mean, at least the community organizations that we've been reaching out to, they are working with the community. You know, a lot of these organizations form because they see the, they, they see the gaps that exist. And so um, they are deeply connected with the community. And um, that's why, you know, the nonprofit organizations and other community organizations are groups that we've been intentionally reaching out to, to get those voices brought to the table well, skipping ahead to strategy eight, let's talk about a just transition to the future of work. One thing that seems to get cut first during economic downturns is social and economic support systems. And one tool that the report mentions is an economic trigger for countercyclical funding in human services. Why is this an important change for governments at all levels to be looking at? So... I mean, for me, the best answer is we're kind of living in it, right? 
COVID-19 is impacting us not only in how we change our work, but it's really shown how, how fragile our economic system is and the need for a, a trigger um, to help us stabilize our community when we're spiraling. The economic instability that many Washingtonians are living in right now is the reason why such an economic trimmer is necessary. And so I think that's like the easiest answer. And I think one that uh, people can identify with in this time of need, that there are so many people who are just trying to pay bills to keep their lights on, um, stay in their housing. That's a huge thing right now. And, and, and pay all the bills that come along with that. And um, and not having enough resources or income to, to take care of those um, their bills that they need to to pay. And so um, it's highlighting, COVID's highlighting all of these things that, and the reason why we need to have them in place. And it also is, um, it speaks to our leaders in Washington State and how they are trying to come together and even, you know, even cities. So I've been talking to several different cities, including Olympia, about how do we, how do we uh, recover how do we recover in a way where all of our um, community can benefit from that um, and then set ourselves up in the future to not have to scramble like we're kind of trying to scramble now? So I think this is one of the our recommendation 8C, protect Washingtonians from economic downturns by developing an economic trigger to provide counter-cyclical funding in human services, education, and job training. You know, this what we're, the time frame we're in right now just speaks to that. Of course, each of the strategies are important to, to move your plan forward. But before we move on, did we miss your favorite strategy? Is there another one you'd like to highlight for our listeners? No, I think they're all necessary. And I think that's the hard part is, you know, we've been asked, you know, what should we focus on first? And in my opinion, you know, it's kind of what we're doing. What's been happening now is that everyone's trying to handle a piece of it, but we're not looking at this holistically. If we don't look at this holistically, we're not really going to impact poverty or everyone who's experiencing and impacted by poverty. And that's why people are feeling left out right now. And so, but for me, the most important, the two most important ones are the one and two, understanding structural and historic racism, and then making sure that we uh, include lived experience in the development and implementation of our policies. And that's just because if we don't have those voices at the table, then no matter how well-intentioned we are as policymakers, uh, decision makers, we will miss it. All right. Um, so a few long months ago, um, you know, it was just at the end, towards the end of last year that we were talking with Mike Reed, who's Olympia's economic development director. Uh, and for our listeners who want to listen to what, you know, what we thought our economy looked like pre-COVID, uh, they could listen to episode number 58. So in Mike's report on the economic ecosystem of Olympia, it highlights that people of color, as, as, we, as we know, make up a disproportionate amount of those who are poor. 17.3% of white people are under the poverty line compared to 30.9% of black people and 35.7% of Latinx folks. And in a, in a community that is 82% white, that, that's very significant. Um, and Megan, you were recently, as you mentioned earlier, um, you were a guest at a virtual town hall that the city hosted on racial justice and economic opportunity. And you talked about the need to have those who are being measured um, to be the ones who are helping to select and interpret the data to figure out the story that is coming from it. Um, how would you like to see this work evolve at the city of Olympia? So this goes back to strategy two, which is bringing these voices to the table 
when we develop independent policy. Um, if you aren't black or a Latin, uh, Latin X and haven't experienced what poverty in Olympia looks like. And I believe that, uh, decision makers have the best intentions, but really how can you have the perspective to identify the barriers that exist that prevent these folks from success? We must remember this is not about intent. It is about outcomes. And so for me, it's, we have data and in the plan, we do a really good job of this too, but we have the data, the qualitative, the quantitative data, the numbers, right? That have the, the outcomes. So you said 17.3% of white people are under the poverty line compared to 30.9% of black people and 35.7% of Latinx people. Um, and so that's, those are the numbers, but what are the stories behind that? You know, the, the numbers are that 17.3% of white people are under the poverty line compared to 30.9% of black people and 35.7% of Latinx people. And if we just focus on the numbers, we could fill that in with any, we could find any number of reasons to explain why that could be the outcome. But if we're not talking to specifically black and Latinx people who are under the poverty line, how will we actually know? And so if we, if we create policies based on reasons that we filled in data um, without that lived experience, again, we're going to miss the mark because we don't know whether the reasons that we've developed are actually those reasons if we don't talk to the people and really value their experiences. So centering their voices as the experts and valuing what they say and honoring what they say um, and believing what they say is really necessary to changing um, kind of our focus and we can see that, you know, time and time again, I think there's numerous policies we can um, point to locally, nationally, and historically that um, show what happens and how programs fail when uh, we don't involve people who are impacted by the data, impacted by in the development of these policies. So that's what I like to see change kind of at Olympia's um, being intentional. These things won't happen by accident. We have to intentionally develop plans for how we include these voices at the table um, and make that part of the part of our process. Do you have an example at, at your top of your mind about what it does look like when we don't center lived experience? Like what, what bad policies can be created if we try to solve these problems without centering the people that are experiencing poverty? So I try not to um, look at people's intent when they create policy. But if we look at the impacts of separate but equal, legalized segregation in uh, United States of America, and the impacts of that for uh, the Black community, how it led to more inequality socially and um, economically, the difference is that you didn't have these voices at the table. They weren't allowed to be a part of the decision-making process. You know, laws were... Um, passed that said, you know, and Black voices weren't at the table, um, that if we, you know, we can keep people, we can keep these groups separate and we can still be treat them, we can still treat them equally and have separate facilities. Well, you know, history has showed us that that's not the case, that that's not true, that there are impacts psychologically to children. I think the study that was done, I can't remember who did the study, but it was, you know, a couple of decades ago um, where they had Black and white dolls and you know, kids as young as five came and said, which doll was the good, bad, the good doll, the bad doll, the smart doll, the stupid doll, the ugly doll, the pretty doll, all the, the white doll was associated with all of the good, what we would determine the good at characteristics and all of the bad characteristics were attributed to the black doll. And so, you know, kids learn very young, they internalize 
all of the things they receive from their environments. That's an impact that that was because, uh, in part because of legalized segregation. Um, and so, you know, and I would say if we look at outcomes in all of the policies that we do, um, we're not necessarily looking at, if we, if we don't have these voices at the table, then we're going to miss things and, and we're going to further disparate outcomes. You can look at the same thing with um, housing segregation um, and what that leads to. You know, if we prevent people from being, from, um, from owning their own homes, we prevent people from building wealth and being able to pass down wealth to their their kids. And that over time, you're able to pass over, pass down more and more and more wealth. And if you, and that's what the housing discrimination of those, of that same kind of generation um, left. And why we have today, we know where uh, black people earn significantly less wealth per dollar than white people have, generally speaking. And it's because in a large part of that, I think um, a lot of data shows that's because of their inability to own homes um, disproportionately. We're actually going to get into housing um, in the next question, but I have a, a follow-up on, um, you know, figuring out how to get the voices of people most impacted at the table. And one thing that, you know, it's, it, it, uh, one thing that I've noticed is that, you know, the people who usually get engaged in public processes have the means to do right. so you know they're not they don't have to worry about child care maybe they're retired you know they're not cooking dinner and while a city meeting is going right. on um and th- these are also people who are most likely to feel disenfranchised like oh now you want to listen mm-hmm. to me like so do you have any um ideas on how to pull people in in a way that they know that their time and energy spent helping to fix a problem that impacts them, that they did not cause, um, you know, how, how do we pull those people in? I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a, it's a building trust. Um, and it's going to take time. Um, so Lori Fings, who is the director of, um, of this team that I'm on, um, she experienced that same phenomenon when they brought the, uh, steering community together, there was a lack of trust, and people doubted, you know, how are you really going to honor our voices this time when we've been left out, when we've been overlooked so much in the past? And so I think that that's really, that is a huge part of that. And Lori stayed in and she said, you know, you, you she acknowledged, let's, we have to be honest and acknowledge that history is real of disenfranchising, of keeping out different groups. And so um, we have to honor that and listen to what people are telling us and come back and come back and come back. And over time, people will begin to see that we're genuine. Um, but if we can't handle that feedback and if we decide that we'll, you know, now we're trying to offer it now and they don't want a part of it, they don't want to hear it now, we're not going to come back, then we just continue the cycle. So uh, we have to be uh, dedicated and stay in it, even though some of the messages may be hard to, hard to hear. Um, but that's people's pain. And, and, and we necessarily weren't the ones that created the situation that we're in today, but we now have a responsibility to try to make things different. And so I would say we need to figure out better ways of going to where the people are. So, excuse me, uh, making, reaching out and making it available for when people will be available. You know, a lot of times we have um, sessions between work hour days, uh, work hour times, nine to five, and people at work. And some people can't afford it to miss a day of pay and they don't have the leave to take. So they can't come. 
you know, what ways are we allowing them to participate outside of business hours? Also, how do we reach out to them? You know, so I know for the town halls that were, I thought, really, really well put together. How do we let people know that these are available? Um, If we're just posting them on our website, then basically those who are already connected are going to be the ones that hear about it. And so how are we reaching out to those communities that don't even know this website exists? Um, what new ways um, can we can we kind of uh, market? Um, and, that, and it's really about marketing, right? Especially in this age, that's uh, that's about a social media presence. How are we marketing ourselves? How are we targeting and reaching out to um, those communities, those people in our communities that make up these marginalized um, that make up these marginalized communities? And then maybe connecting with some community organizations in Olympia. Um, I'm still new. Well, I consider myself still new to Olympia. I'm from Tacoma, you know, but connecting with different community organizations and reaching out that way is a, is a good way to start um, connecting with some of these community members that um, aren't aware of these opportunities to provide feedback and to get connected to uh, the city of Olympia, um, I think would be a good start. And then being flexible to when we're allowing groups to come in and give comments and being intentional about reaching out to these perspectives. Let's loop back to housing now. A major part of access to economic opportunity is access to housing. If someone is not able to live in a place where opportunity is being created, they still won't have access. In Olympia, our population can use to outpace the construction of new housing, which drives the cost to both rent or own. Do you have any ideas for how the city could address access to housing? Yeah, thank you for that question. And, and um, for those who are familiar with the 10-year plan, strategy five addresses the urgent need of people experiencing homelessness, violence, mental illness, and or addiction, which all of those kind of um, interact in some way or another into homelessness. So several recommendations we have that I think each, each community um, can consider when um, trying to address homelessness is um, our recommendations on there. Um, 5A, provide greater resources for community-led data collection. So data is really huge. Um, if, we don't, if we don't have the correct data to measure, we can't determine whether we're making a difference or not. Recommendation 5D is increase state and local rental assistance and diversion programs that allow children, youth, adults, and families to avoid homelessness. So Um, You know, I know there's a lot of agencies even right now, organizations right now that are trying to um, increase rental assistance um, because that's a huge issue with COVID. And so figuring out how we can provide um, these um, programs to people in times of crisis and times of need, Um, because if we can keep people housed, then um, a lot of other outcomes from that people who experience homelessness um, have we can avoid those. And all of those are increased cost to our, our jurisdiction, to Olympia. So 5C is increase the number of emergency, transitional, and permanent supportive housing options. Um, those are important to um, people who are experiencing, who are trying to break free from um, addiction, even in violence, domestic violence. So all those kind of situations there, and even um, people who are recently incarcerated. Um, 5D, develop stronger public-private partnerships to increase opportunities for supported education, job training, and employment. This is huge because, and I think we talked about that in the workforce of the future, is that, you know, as our economy changes and opportunities for certain jobs 
grows, some other ones uh, kind of fade away. And if we don't help people into new jobs, they're going to struggle to bring enough income in and they're going to struggle with housing instability. Um, 5E, create a medical financial partnership model for Washington State. So financial stress due to health outcomes is huge. Um, And so we need to find a way, and this might be more state, but um, I know there's a lot of people in every community that struggle with paying medical bills and access to medical care. uh, And that the stress that creates with them able to stay in housed um, and then improve access to prevention, treatment, and recovery support services. I know, I thought, I believe Thurston County was had a task force for the opioid crisis. And so things like this where we're connecting with community organizations to help people get services, divert them from the criminal justice system, will all be able to, um, or all serve to help us help people so that they can stay housed. So I think those are some of the things we can do. Um, also, you know, I have been listening to the Outsiders podcast and that is really has been helpful for me to even seeing or learning about the factors that lead to people losing their homes and being without homes. And so I think just uh, doing more connecting with these communities and hearing about, you know, learning how they um, um, came to be without homes and then developing strategies around that would help the city of Olympia. Well, if you're interested, Megan, we did actually interview Will James uh, on this podcast. Um, It was a few months ago, but it was during COVID because we didn't get a chance to meet him. But that's episode number 63, if any of our listeners or if you are interested in listening yourself. Um, I I think in uh, the interview we did with him, he kind of built on things that weren't, uh, you know, some of his more personal opinions that weren't included in that podcast that were really informative for Mm. me. In terms of, you know, we can we can build um, economic opportunities for people. We can, you know, build solutions for housing for people so that we can create more opportunity in Olympia. Uh, but in our last episode, we spoke with a guest who told us about how hard it is for her to live here as a black woman based on her day-to-day experiences of microaggressions and outright racism. Um, and she works for the Olympia School District still, but she ended up moving to Tacoma to be in a place that felt more welcoming for her. So, you know, it seems that we can work on creating this opportunity, but it might not work if we don't create an environment that, that feels welcoming for everyone. Do you have any thoughts on how communities that are predominantly white, such as Olympia, can change to be a more welcoming space for people of color? Yeah, so my answer for this question is a personal one. So I take my employee hat off for this one and just speak to my experience as a Black woman who also lives in Olympia. You know, I have felt overwhelming support from the majority of my neighbors that live in the city of Olympia, and I'm so grateful for that. And so I'm speaking really broadly about that, that there's overwhelming support here. And I've also experienced racism in in these past several months. So what can we do? is I think we need to take it upon ourselves to educate ourselves and don't look to white voices to interpret what black community, what the black community wants and desires. There are enough black authors and speakers who can tell, who can tell you what the black community wants. And I can't tell you how, how frustrating it is for me to have to correct something someone has heard about the black community from someone who is not black. And a lot of the messages we can, you know, I'm seeing, news, social media feeds, things like that 
are interpretations of what the black community wants, but they're not sp- spoken from, or the direct the source was not from someone who was black. The majority of black uh, voices that I've heard and spoken to are all saying the same thing that we just want to be treated the same as everyone else. We don't want to be treated more better or worse. We just want the same. You know, we want that through love um, and nonviolence. And so what I would say is if you really want to create a welcoming community, speak to those, educate yourselves on what those communities want and treat them the same, treat them just like you would want to be seen as a human being and check your fear. So Fear is an effective tool because it makes us react in ways we wouldn't otherwise. Uh, I have a two-year-old, and so she is loving Frozen 2. And so we watch, <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're watching it all the time. <laughs> and uh, in that movie, Elsa says, fear is what can't be trusted. And there's a point in the, in the movie when she is um, going back and listening to a conversation her, her grandfather has who is the king and is uh, reaching out to a community and is talking about how the community, that community follows uh, magic and that magic can't be trusted. And, and she's saying, no, that's not what fear does. It doesn't make people defy the will of a king, but fear is that's your fear talking and fear is what can't be trusted. And so I think we have to really look at what, what we fear and what causes us to fear those and really look if that's based in reality or not black people and other uh, people of color are people with thoughts, hopes, and dreams, just like everyone else. Um, let's avoid being manipulated by those who would make you fear, fear us otherwise. And let's really seek to learn about each other because at the end of the day, this is going to take all of us to get through this. And we're all in this together. And we all want to, in this, you know, in this America, um, that is a land of, opp- that is a land of opportunity. Um, but we need to create in a way where everyone actually can have the opportunity to create that opportunity. And so for me, you know, I don't necessarily have to agree with everything everyone says, but when you see me, see me as a human being, don't see me for what you think, you know, what you've been told I represent as a black uh, person, see me as a, a unique individual, you know, everyone in the, you know, just like you would say as a white person, how would you want to be treated? You might think, well, I'm white, but I am an individual and I have, I like these things, which is different from this white person. Well, it's the same thing for black people. You know, we're different as well. We're unique as well. Yes, race is a social construct, but it has very real outcomes, implications for people. So until we can uh, remove those implications, we have to continue talking about it. For me, a lot of this centers around just educating people on history because we're not operating under the same understanding of facts. So what I talk about with housing, look up redlining, look up uh, Jim Crow, separate but equal, educate yourselves on some of the things that, that America has done in the history. It's part of all of our history. So it's not just about the great things and we've done a lot of great things, but it's also being honest about some of the, the not great things that we have in our history until we can do that. We'll never be able to really have honest conversations and come up with honest solutions to these problems. Thank you for that. You're welcome. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering if you could uh, quickly. Um, you talked in the virtual town hall that you did with the city of Olympia. You talked about the concept of anti-racism, and that's come up in a few different of these podcast episodes that we've done. And um, I'm wondering if you could just define that for our listeners real quick so that as we see this term anti-racism, as opposed to, you know, 
not being racist? Um, you know, what does that mean? Yeah, so I can describe it for you. And if you really want to take a deep dive into it, it's uh, Ibram X. Kendi. Uh, it's a book he has, How, How to Be uh, Anti-Racist. It's really, really um, good read. And basically what he says is that you have two choices. You can either be part of the problem or part of the solution. There is no middle ground. And so, um, and it's really talking about action. So if you are, if you are not actively being engaged, however that means for you in your sphere of control in creating um, anti-racist and anti-racist society, then you're actually part of the problem, part of what's keeping our society um, in structural racism. I guess the there's a quote I think that's become more popular now that Martin Luther King Jr. speaks to, and um, where he's realizing I think it's a, the letter letting letter from a Birmingham jail, and he speaks to um, his disappointment in the white moderate. The biggest threat to the Negro is not the Ku Klux Klaner; it is the white moderate. The person who prefers the semblance of peace to real justice. And he goes on and has this beautifully written kind of explanation of what that is. And I think Ibram X. Kendi is playing on that, that there is no middle ground because if you're, if you're silent, then you're a part of allowing these, this, this uh, society to continue in the way that it's, that it's been in history. If you want a different society, if you want a society where people really are valued on the content of their character and everyone does really have the ability of life, liberty and pursuit of happiness, then you have to be part of you have to be anti-racist. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be out there protesting. But think about the ways that you can engage in your own lives personally, um, what you feel comfortable doing and not allowing, not staying silent as some of these things that are happening that we know to be wrong are happening and occurring. Um, and for me, being anti-racist, it doesn't necessarily... So a lot of things in in our society right now are binary. People say, well, if you're this, then you can't be this. Either or. Black and white. And there's so much gray. I say that we can support our police officers and we can also ask for greater accountability. It's not an either or statement. If I support uh, the statement Black Lives Matter... That is not me on anti-police. And we really have to push past that because people want us to choose sides and people want us to fight each other. If we're fighting each other, then we're not focusing on how to elevate all of us to uh, a more equitable economic society. So don't fall for the fight. Let's talk. Let's have more complex, some more complex conversations and let's let's find a way to meet. Let's talk about all of our perspectives and let's find a way to meet in the middle where it's not about either or. Um, and also, I would like to say, too, since we're kind of on this, that this conversation is not a zero-sum gain. If people who are white have heard, one, that that means there's no longer space for me as a white man who have historically had a lot of power and privilege, that now I'm going to be left out. That's not the case. What we're trying to say is that there needs to be space for all of us, yours included. So please believe that if you're a white male, your voice needs to be needs to continue to be heard. We just want to add more voices to that perspective to create policies that speak for everyone. Also, if you gain, I lose. So if I give you a piece of my pie, now I have less pie. There's enough for all of us. Um, and we have to look at it that way and stop looking and not look at it or fight the urge to look at it is as in order for you to succeed, I have to lose. 
it's not, that's not the, how this game, that's not how this works. Um, and so I think if we shift how we look at it, then we will stop seeing ourselves as adversaries and really start looking at ourselves as partners in this work. Sounds like we need to bake some pie. <laughs> I'm for that. I'm for that. <laughs> What's your favorite kind of pie, Megan? Uh, strawberry rhubarb. Oh, oh good choice. Good choice. Excellent choice. <laughs> Megan, thank you so much. Is there anything that we didn't ask that our listeners need to know? No, I think for me, it's it's about learning. So it's about doing our work. And we've talked about that. I think that it's about um, really reaching out to people who are different from us to learn about their perspectives, which we've kind of talked about. And it's about seeing ourselves as partners with each other um, instead of adversaries as we work to shape our society and pushing against voices who try to make us adversaries because we're all in this together. And so I think you all did a really good job of highlighting this in your podcast. And I am uh, grateful that you are taking some time to look at the uh, economic injustice and economics of this and have those discussions so we can begin to move forward in a positive direction for all of us. Well, thank you so much for your time and your energy and just sharing your experience. Um, it's been it's been great. Thanks. And to our listeners, this has been the Olympia Standard. If you have any thoughts or topics you'd like to pitch, people you'd like us to talk to, you can reach us at theolympiastandard at gmail.com. And you know you're not going to find us on Snapchat, Instagram, or TikTok, but you will find us at Twitter at The Oli Standard and on Facebook at The Oli Standard. And we also hang out on the Olympia subreddit from time to time. This podcast is produced by the two fine fellows at Olympia Pop Rocks. Jemmy Joe does all the... Uh, editing of these audio files to make us sound smart and his best friend Guire McGuire did our music. Sure. You can support them by going to olympiapoffrocks.com and clicking on Patreon. Uh, thanks so much for listening. <laughs> See you later, guys. <laughs>